Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we're What Doctors Don't Tell You. Can you believe this? That all the years we've been running What Doctors Don't Tell You, we've only just now started to do a vlog and a podcast. Everyone on the planet's been doing this forever, and we never have. And so here we are, finally dragging ourselves in to the 21st century. So welcome to our very first vlog and podcast. And I suppose it's worth saying, then, just giving the people a few ideas about, well, we've been doing this for a long, long time. We were children. And uh, we started in 1989 as a newsletter, and it's today a brilliant magazine. But, you know, it's been a long time doing something, and, and even now a lot of people don't really understand why are we even doing it. We you know there's been a lot of noise about us uh, from trolls and before the web, lots of dissenters and people who were encouraged by uh, certain forces, shall we say, to try and discredit us. But we really haven't spoken that much ourselves about why we've done what we do. So maybe we should, in case you don't know. And I suppose in, it's really summed up in two words, which is informed consent, which actually is a legal requirement, which is utterly ignored by medicine. But informed consent means that everyone actually has all the information about a drug or a treatment, its benefits, its side effects, its adverse reactions, its chances of success. And people don't get this information. Well, exactly. And I mean, this started from a personal quest, to be honest. I mean, I got ill in the mid 80s and I couldn't find what was wrong with me. And more and more things started happening to me. Um, and I went from the very conventional type of doctor to the very out of rim of alternative medicine and no one could figure out what it was. So I finally realized that I was going to have to take charge of my own healing process. I was going to have to investigate the the doctor I needed to heal me, and the route that I needed to take. So I figured out what I thought I might have. And then I found an amazing forward-thinking nutritional doctor, somebody who would be called a functional med medical specialist at the time. And together we worked to get me better. It took about a year, but I was absolutely amazed by the participatory method he used to get me better. We were equals, we were sharing in this healing process. And so after this, Brian and I were so inspired, we thought we shouldn't just talk about this ourselves, we should tell the world. Because we felt there were a lot of non-drug ways to get people better in every regard. We also felt that medicine is a private conversation. The more we looked into the medical literature, the more we found failures that a lot of those treatments out there that we take for granted on chronic illnesses, everything from diabetes to heart disease, etc., don't work very well. In fact, medicine is now the third leading cause of death. Pres correctly prescribed drugs are the third leading cause of death. So being investigative reporters, we felt compelled to tell this to the world. And we also found that we were a bit of a voice in the silence, as we were called when we launched by the, the London Times, because nobody was reporting these stories. And as investigative reporters, we were well-placed to dig out what works and what doesn't work in conventional and alternative medicine, and then provide better alternatives. 
Yeah, and I think um, just dealing now with vaccines, because I suppose that is the hottest potato for a lot of people. You know, we're not, again, not anti-vaxxers. What we are is giving parents the right information to make an informed choice. You know, and governments and health authorities are not giving them this information. And they have the right to know. It may well be that having read all this and looked at the risks, that they decide to go with vaccination. And absolutely, that's fine with, with us. It's not our business. But it is our business to make sure they do have all the facts because governments don't tell them this. So, which brings us to our first news item. And what we're going to do is just talk about you know, recent news and just scat about it, talk about it, uh, riff off about it. Um, and so, yeah, here we go. So the first one, it, just talking about vaccines and research. Um, piece came out just the other day that uh, the uh, researchers from Oxford University were cherry picking um, the data about a new TB vaccine, which uh, they were helping to uh, investigate in order to get extra funding. Now, this meant that um, studies came out which assumed that the vaccine was both safe and effective and was therefore given to 2,800 small kids in South Africa. But the truth was, the data wasn't there at all. In fact, when they looked at the data in the full, all the benefits went away. And so these children were, well, wrongly given this vaccine when no one knew if indeed it was safe. You know, and this is really what we deal with all the time. And um, there was a study just, what, 10 years ago, I think New, uh, New England uh, Journal of Medicine reckoned that about 70% of medical research was false. You know, not just this piece, but many, many pieces that are published, which have been peer-reviewed, are false and written by PR companies. Now, this is pretty serious because, you know, medicine prides itself on being a science. And because it calls itself a science, it gets the big bucks. You know, this is what um, the National Health Service spends its money on, what the American health uh, regime spends its money on. Because it's scientific, it's based on research that demonstrates that drugs and treatments are both safe and effective. But if 70% of the data is false, that is not a premise that you can take. And the other outrageous thing about um, these kinds of studies, and there's so much of this dirty medicine when it comes to vaccination. I mean, we are shocked because we've been covering vaccines since 1989, digging deep into the medical literature. And it's there where we find that in many instances, there isn't the data there. There aren't the studies there to support what they do, the program of vaccination that they offer. I mean, what we were shocked to find out after all of the brouhaha about the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine, where they discredited a scientist called Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who first raised the alarm about this vaccine as a gastroenterologist, when he discovered lots of his children, his pediatric patients, were coming in with bizarre gut problems and also autism, which had developed right after the vaccine. As you probably know, he was totally discredited, attacked, and he even lost his license to practice. However, just a couple of years ago, 
finally came forward a whistleblower from the Centers for Disease Control, the very drug and government agency that is designed to protect the public interest from infectious disease. It came out that they had doctored a study showing a link between autism and the MMR vaccine. That study, that story, that whistleblower never made it into the general press. It was only the press like us that covered the story. And so we see this dirty pool happening all the time, and it's all about the money. In this instance, with this, uh, with this vaccine, it was all about the researchers getting funding to carry on their research. It had nothing to do with child safety. Hmm. Well, staying on the subject of vaccinations, everyone's thinking now about the flu vaccine and the um, Public Health England have sent round a letter to all GPs warning them that the current vaccine will not work. Um, unfortunately, they, they wanted to save some money. And so they issued a vaccine that doesn't actually combat the major flu virus that's going around this year. Um, so there's a real danger, but people are not talking about this, but it's a genuine concern. And on a wider topic with flu vaccines in general, um, the, uh, researchers about a couple of weeks ago now discovered that the way that the vaccine is manufactured also reduces its chances of working effectively in the world. That's because the virus is uh, grown within an egg and the virus then changes to adapt to its environment, the egg environment, which is not very similar to the environment outside. And so by the time the virus is then taken from the act, from the egg, it's already adapted to a different environment, which again reduces its effectiveness. Well, we're seeing this now um, with the, the government, once again, its inability to accept the data. Um, one thing that's happening in the UK is that uh, schools are now putting pressure on parents to get the flu vaccine. And of course, in America, this is going to be magnified because so much, so many vaccines are mandatory, unlike the UK. But we see this, once again, this, this blind adherence to medicine without looking at the data, looking at whether the stuff even works, or considering that something that has no benefit may cause harm. But the other thing, too, that's really interesting about this is just the underappreciation of uh, of bugs, basically. We're finding that bugs are involved in a lot of illnesses these days, and they need to be taken to, uh, into account. We're now researching a story for a future issue about the connection between bugs and, and thyroid problems, um, the Epstein-Barr virus. So I think this is part of the idea that these viruses and bacteria are very smart, uh, it argues against indiscriminate use of, of, of antibiotics, but also that there's got to be a better and greater appreciation when you're trying to create a vaccine mm. to try to be one step ahead of them. Mm. I mean, on the subject of bugs, in our latest issue, we do feature in the news quite a lengthy news piece about the relationship between bugs and cancer. And it's fascinating what they're coming up with now because, you know, everyone sort of thinks they know pretty much what 
are the causes of cancer, but actually bugs could be quite a serious new uh, revelation that they are now exploring and indeed are beginning to treat with some success. I mean, there are some cancers that forever they've known are caused by, by bugs, but in the main, they've, they've always denied this. But it appears that now this is slowly turning and could be a, a whole new line of therapy that takes away you know, the need for chemo or radiotherapy and instead replacing cancer treatment with pre- and probiotics to, to counter the bugs. So do you want to talk a bit more about that? Sure. I mean, I think what's really interesting here is the new recognition that we've got a microbiome, not just in our gut, but in other parts of our bodies. And remember, the microbiome is that little colony of friendly bacteria or unfriendly bacteria, depending on how healthy you are, that are now seeming to be a really integral part of our immune system. So with this discovery of bacteria possibly being involved in a number of cancers, they're finding that even in things like the breast, there's a microbiome, and in women with breast cancer, it's altered. And we've seen that with a number of other cancers. They're now suggesting that maybe it also has an effect in blood cancers like uh, and uh, cancers of the lymph system. may have to do with a faulty microbiome. So all of that bacterial population is more and more important, increasingly central to our understanding of cancer. I was fascinated to see that the late Dr. Patrick Kingsley uh, formerly of our panel, what of what doctors don't tell you, routinely used to check to see if people had had and women who had breast cancer had recently had shingles or chickenpox because he found that that virus um, oftentimes connected to um, them having you know them having breast cancer. So again, bugs are taking some sort of central stage and it's not like we can't fight them. It's not like there isn't a solution to it, but they have to be taken into account. And once they are, we can really eliminate these kinds of cancers, these kinds of conditions. Hmm. And if you want to read about that, and it really is fascinating stuff, it is in the January issue of What Doctors Don't Tell You, available in shops right across the UK as well as in the US. So do pick that up. It's really worth reading. Now, there's a bit of drug news that's come through in the last few days, which I think we do need to share with you in case you are on some of these prescription medications. Um, for example, the um, some of the world's most common uh, drugs for hypertension or high blood pressure uh, significantly increase the risk of, of skin cancer. And they're known as diuretics or water pills, uh, increase the risk sevenfold, which is an enormous increased risk. And so for people who are taken diuretics they actually do need to be careful being out in the sun as it will have a quite could have quite a profound effect um, normally the safe sun idea is is overblown and is based upon uh, sun exposure in australia and for northern climes it doesn't make a lot of sense but if you are taking a diuretic it is something you probably do need to take seriously or talk to your doctor about taking another antihypertensive uh, there's another drug alert that came out a few days ago about uh, a commonly prescribed diabetic drug um, called metformin, um, which again is um, causing a whole series of um, serious side effects. 
And in fact, um, usually gastric problems, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, and around about a third of people can't tolerate the drugs. So I think, again, people need to be aware of that and probably need to talk to their doctors about whether they should continue treatment. I mean, if you have suddenly started to develop uh, gastrointestinal problems and it also so happens you've just recently started taking the drug, it's not unreasonable to suspect the drug actually is the cause. So, so that's that. Well, and I think what's so outrageous about these latest stories is that they both uh, concern a condition that can easily be handled by the judicious use of diet and, and exercise and supplements. Let's just take blood pressure, for instance. I mean, one of the really outrageous things about blood pressure is that um, the doctors keep changing the goalposts as to what is considered high blood pressure. Currently, it's at its lowest level. So that means more and more people are considered to be hypertensive when they're not. I think it's something like 120 is the is the threshold, which is just outrageous because that puts so many millions of more people into the whole category of being uh, someone with high blood pressure. But there are many, many things. I mean, you easily can sort your blood pressure simply by eliminating sugar from your diet. And by sugar, I mean all the white stuff, all the, anything that comes in a box, anything that's been pro processed. And most of that will go a long way toward lowering your blood pressure. I mean, as it happens in our February issue, an upcoming issue, we're going to be covering a whole bunch of stuff about blood pressure and how you can lower your blood pressure naturally with certain supplements, with a number of different things like that. Now, the same goes for type 2 diabetes. This is also scandalous that drugs are being offered for type 2 diabetes, which can, in the main, be completely controlled by changing diet. People who go on to a low glycemic diet, that means they avoid those foods that turn into sugar quickly, like white rice and bread and uh, white potatoes and things like that, can quickly normalize or adopting a paleo diet, which is becoming more and more um, uh, popular where you eliminate the white stuff plus grains. Um, people normalize their um, blood sugar and get it under control very easily without having to take a potentially dangerous drug. Hmm. Here's a question. <clears throat> what age group takes the most drugs? <laughs> You got me there. Oh, but. okay. Well, it's, it's the over 65s, right? The over 65s take about probably eight tenths, 80% of all the prescribed drugs. Okay. And how many doctors are gerontologists, which means the study of old age? Yes. Round about 5%. No one studies the subject, and yet the recipients are the ones who need the study. They need to understand more about aging, and, and doctors don't. So they just prescribe them loads of drugs, okay? Now, there, are sort of, there were five measures of aging, and um, including, obviously, senility, uh, in, in, in uh, incontinence, um, uh, instability, uh, dizziness, all these issues. And they all uh, come back to side effects of drugs. 
many, many, many of the features of what we you know, blame on just getting old actually are caused by the drugs that are being prescribed. I mean, old people now are taking an average of seven drugs a day if you're over 65, right? And so isn't really surprising that not only do these drugs individually can cause these problems for older people, but the chemical reaction of seven highly toxic chemicals working together, which is never actually reviewed by anybody, could have a catastrophic effect and probably is. Now, that's, a, that's the gloomy bit. The good news is that instead of taking all these drugs, a new research program has said, you know, if people over the age of 65 start taking vitamin supplements, you know, that can have the same effect, mm. you know. And this is what they're saying that people should be doing, and especially vitamin D. You know, we were saying a few minutes ago about diuretics and how you've got to be careful with sun exposure. You know, for most people, we just don't get enough vitamin D, especially if we live in the northern climes. We just don't get enough sunlight. And so, therefore, we are seriously deficient in vitamin D. And one of them, it's one of the most essential nutrients and seems to, you know, affect almost every biological process. And yet we don't get anywhere near enough. We are suboptimal, as the scientists call it. So, you know, if you're over 65, you need to start taking supplements and especially vitamin D. And especially that's true if you live in the, in the northern climb. So really important news there for, for older folk. And, you know, one of the things about vitamin D, now, he comes from the UK, I come from the US. So I'm vitamin, he's vitamin, he's process, I'm process. Um, potato, potato. All of that stuff. Tomato. I, I Sometimes I'll say tomato. Yeah. <laughs> but mostly tomato. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but the big deal about vitamin D is that, first of all, it's not really a vitamin. It's actually a hormone. So necessary for all kinds of processes and really important in higher doses than we're told. Now, we're told to take 400 IUs, which is about the level you need to prevent a deficiency, but not near enough, say, a lot of forward-thinking nutritional practitioners. It should be more like 3,000 IUs. So look to increasing your dosage, certainly getting out in the sun, but taking, if you don't have enough sun where you live, making sure you get enough vitamin D and not worrying quite so much about this whole thing about sun factors and, and covering up your skin. They found that this is so necessary and that the whole idea about skin cancer is so much more complicated than just being out in the sun. And the sun is so vital for your health that what they usually say is 10 minutes in the morning of making sure the skin gets a little bit red is about all the, the vitamin D that you need. So that's the best way to get it. But if you can't, you can also supplement. And that's really important. The other interesting thing about the elderly and taking all of these drugs, as Brian says, the problem is nobody's studying the interaction with them. And when they found... You know, think about the number of chemicals out there in drugs or even all of the toxins we have in our environment. Nobody's looking at that, you know, the, the synergistic or antagonistic effect. And when you think about having lots of drugs like this with all these different reactions, there's probably not enough zeros out there to work out the, uh, the giant odds 
of you getting ill from it. But all of those things that they talk about as being features of old age, forgetfulness, falls, uh, falls a lot to do with hyper, antihypertensive drugs, all of those kinds of effects um, can really be linked back to drugs. And particularly things like dementia, you know, big link between dementia and cholesterol, anti-cholesterol drugs, cholesterol-lowering drugs. And that's something nobody ever tells you except us. Mm. Do you know what one of my favorite expressions is? It's never too late. And do you know what? There's a new research study came out a couple of weeks ago which proved just that point. Someone who's aged 55, who has never exercised in their life before, who starts exercising at that age, can absolutely reverse all the early signs of heart attack or indeed heart failure. And that's remarkable because you're saying, well, you have to do this for, you know, for, for years and start when you're young. You know, you don't. As long as you start by your mid-50s, it's, it's soon enough to start reversing that. Now, the, the, there's, there's sort of downsides to this. The first is you have to do it for two years before you start seeing any effects. And the second bit of bad news is it has to be a little bit of intense uh, aerobic type exercise, which means the heart pounds a little bit faster. Don't have to be completely out, but I mean, it, the idea is that your heart is bounding faster, but not so that you couldn't still hold a conversation. So as long as you can achieve that, you know you're exercising enough, and you're going to do all that good. So the sweet spot is 53, actually, but you know that's a medium, that's the average. But you know, anything in your mid, even probably up to your late 50s, it's you know, it's time enough to start some exercise. So taking your vitamin supplements, starting to exercise, it's not too late. And we've even seen studies showing that at any point, doing exercise will improve things. Um, and we're not, you know, we're not just talking about vigorous exercise. That was just part of a study to look at whether or not you could reverse heart disease. But talking about just improving your general health, walking, is probably one of our favorite exercises and certainly one of the most healthful. Um, they reckon that just, you know, not enormous bouts, but just 20 to 30 minutes, three, four times a week can have major, major effects on your body. So, and they found this even with the 60s and 70 year olds. So just a little bit of exercise is really all it takes. And then looking at your diet and supplements to really turn things around at any age. Hmm. Here's an interesting one. Heat therapy. You know, there's this is a bit controversial, but going back to the... When was Reagan president? 1980s. Yeah, 1980s. He had heat therapy for a cancer and it reversed it. Now, researchers have come up with a, uh, a new study where they, someone had a sauna for 30 minutes and it seemed to have a big effect on the heart health, the, heart, the health of your heart. It reduced blood pressure and it also lowers your chance of heart problems and heart attack. And these same researchers did a study a couple of years back which also demonstrated that taking a sauna for 30 minutes also reduced the risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Now I think the so relationship between heat and disease is really fascinating, isn't it? Well, there's a couple of things going on here. There is, number one, 
heat raising the body's temperature. I mean, there's been some really good evidence, even going back to Coley's toxins, mm. um, looking at cancer and showing that raising the body's temperature can kill all kinds of things, including cancer. Um, but there's another thing going on with saunas too, which is just getting stuff out of your body. I mean, saunas are a hugely effective way of detoxing. You know, in detoxing, you need to get stuff out. And you can get stuff out through, and say, heavy metals, through things like chelation, things that draw it out chemically, but also boiling it out, getting it out through heat, through heat and sweat. And so with all of the toxins we have that we're exposed to all the time, not only heavy metals, but all of those chemicals out there that are part of environmental chemicals now, having that sauna can just clear that out. And we know there's good evidence showing that Alzheimer's, for instance, is very much linked to uh, poisons, toxins, um, heavy metals, and other kinds of toxins. So just drawing that stuff out is hugely good for you. Hmm. And finally, if this podcast doesn't send you to sleep, then this might. Researchers have done some work on uh, sleeping problems. Loads of people have sleeping problems. They don't. There's something like 40% of adults have a bad night's sleep, several bad nights sleep a month, you know. And most of us don't really get our seven hours or eight hours, which <clears throat> they say is now the optimum, as much as we should. So researchers looked into this and said, well, what can we do to, to do this? If you're not listening to the What Doctors podcast, what they suggest you do is to write a to-do list just before you go to bed. So round about 15 minutes before you, you your head hits the pillow, write down everything that you've got to do tomorrow. And researchers thought, well, this isn't going to work because if you sort of have to write down what you're going to do tomorrow, you're going to remind yourself of all the things that have to be done tomorrow, and it's going to make you more stressed. But it seems like it's almost like a brain dump. That if you actually write it down on a piece of paper, people just let it go, and they fell asleep. And it had a, quite a remarkable effect. So, you know, there you are. There's a good last tip for you as we, as we finish this podcast today. So... I think that's about about it, Lynn. What do you think? And I think, and when I think that, you know, one of the things you can do too, if you've been frightened by some of the things we talked about initially, write it down and then it won't, it'll make sure not to keep you awake tonight. <laughs> so signing off, we, we hope to sort of see you again soon. I'm Brian Hubbard. I'm Lynn McTaggart. Thanks very much for listening to What Doctors Don't Tell You and watching it if you're doing so on YouTube. Thank you. Thank you.